Mark, off camera, we were talking about you're moving out to Santa Barbara, UCSB from the East Coast, mm-hmm. and you didn't know anyone. So you have a bachelor's in film studies and then a master's in uh, motion hey, picture and producing. Producing? Yeah. Okay, great. What did those degrees prepare you for? And in the long run, now looking back on it, what classes do you think were missing from the curriculum? Um, well, so Santa Barbara was much more critical studies, not so much production. Uh, when I had applied out here, I, I was transferring as a junior. So there was no time for me to sort of work my way into the film program. I either had to get into the film program or, or bust. And I didn't get into UCLA at all. And USC I got into, but I didn't get into the film program. And so Santa Barbara at the time, it was the only one that accepted me. And I was, I was a little bit iffy on going to Santa Barbara. I had never been there. And I was like, oh, they, you know, they're too far from LA. Oh, it's film studies and not production. And my dad stops me. He's like, you'll like it. And I go, eh, I don't know. It, you'll like it. He just stopped me. He's like, you'll like it. Trust me. So I just jumped on a plane a week before school started and just flew out to Santa Barbara. I'd never visited the campus. Just I was like, wow. And when I got there, man, I was like, wow, did I hit the honeypot? Um, it was, yeah, it was something. Um, just just kind of going through the campus on that first day. And so, uh, I, you know, um, I think a lot of the classes there, it gave me a very good background um, in terms of, you know, the, the you know, film classics and what, you know, kind of... What, gener- what, what, what in those films generated such a response from, uh, from audiences? What, what was it you know, in terms of um, how they spoke to that generation and what themes were in there? And just really kind of studying the, the anatomy of the film. There was also some production, but it was, a lot of it was really just studies. So, uh, you know, um, it was a different type of education than I expected. But maybe it was the platform that I kind of needed before I, you know, before I jumped into um, to working in the in, in the film industry, getting that sort of understanding about classic films and and who made them and why they made them and how they affected people. Um, but you know, I don't know if, if when I was taking the classes, if there was any necessary class that I thought wasn't, um, you know, that was missing from the curriculum. I mean, we had a lot of, I you know. Uh, um, you know, there was a porn class, which I didn't take. Oh. They actually taught a porn class. Directing porn or film. starring? Just uh, just analyzing porn films. <laughs> okay. Yeah, All just right. analyze. Well, again, because it was studies. Wow. Um, there was like, you know, on Ch- Chinese cinema. I mean, you wanted to learn about 1950s Swedish cinema. I mean, there was like classes on just about everything. Um, and there were certain mandatory ones, you know, that you had to take. Um, like, you know, the 101 series was films on. Uh, the, the first sec- section was films on the silent era. Then on... Sort of the era from the advent of sound up through um, the Paramount Decree when they sort of uh, like de-integrated uh, the uh, all the all the studios were vertically integrated. They controlled the theaters, the distribution, and the production. So up until sort of when the government got involved and said, "No, you can't actually have movie screens as well. You can't own exhibition, distribution, and production." And then the last section was up from there up to modern day cinema. So we even watched like The Matrix. Oh, nice. in film studies and analyze that. And I think it just gave me a, a platform and an understanding of, you know, film content and storytelling that, you know, laid a nice platform before before I got involved in actual production. So that was Santa Barbara. And then UCLA was, was definitely, um, you know, in terms of a producing program, a lot more <clears throat> oriented toward the business of filmmaking. So, um, 
you know, I had what I liked about UCLA. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of academics. I'm not a huge fan of people that just teach and haven't done or haven't done in 20 years. I like, I like to learn from the people who are doing it now. And so UCLA's professors were all people that were working at the time. So like my marketing professor was um, Terry Press, who was the head of all of DreamWorks marketing. I mean, her boss was Steven Spielberg. Like she oh, wow. was the top of marketing and she came and taught a class for you know, three hours every Wednesday night or whatever it was. So learning marketing from her, it's like you're learning from the best. Or um, Eric Baum, who was the senior VP of, of um, um, business affairs at Sony, was my contracts and negotiations professor. He was doing it at the time and he'd come teach the class at night. So oh, cool. yeah, I, I, le I learned a lot. Um, I would say my probably my two biggest mentors there were, were um, Meg LaFoe, who was Jodie Foster's producing partner at the time. And she just a genius at um, script development, just an absolute genius. Um, and then uh, Merle Schreibman, who we taught me production, and I produced a few actual projects within UCLA. And so I would say, um, you know, the, they were probably my two biggest mentors. Um, I'd say in terms of, you know, classes that might have been missing, I, there was no, um, new media hadn't really, you know, become a thing yet, um, even though it was sort of in the nascent stages. So, because um, this was 01 to 03. Very, oh. It would be pre-YouTube, mm -hmm. but at the time I was creating CD-ROM media packages for artists and stuff. So there was a nascent new media sphere and there wasn't a lot, I think it was really maybe almost too early, but there wasn't a lot in the producer's program for that. It was mostly traditional film and television. Um, so, but I didn't feel like, man, I wish they had, you know, more of this or that or the other there. Um, I felt like I got out of it what I wanted to get out of it. And on the weekends or days off, were you taking the train down to L.A. while you were in Santa Barbara? Um, I, I had a car. Oh, you had a car. I okay. did. Mm -hmm. And I was interning in my... So, like I said, I, I came into Santa Barbara my junior year. So I was there for two years, junior, senior. So during my senior year, I interned at Film Roman, where they do The Simpsons. Ah. Mm -hmm. um, but I interned for the feature film department, which... I don't even think is around. I don't know if they're around anymore. I don't think they are. But they were around for a small time. They did a movie called My First Mister with Christine Lottie. Right. Um, and they were in development on, on a number of other things. So I did intern for them. And um, it was a good experience. I mean, I, I, yeah, I started doing coverage. So learning how to do coverage and just, you know, understanding what they were looking for in a script. That was my first sort of practical hands-on experience in Los Angeles. Um, and I, it was a good one. It was good. So it prepared you because Santa Barbara is, is a beautiful, amazing place. And, and I would love to live there now. Yeah. Um, but it is a bubble of happiness and sunshine and things. And so to, to come back to Hollywood and struggle for a parking spot and find a place to live that's safe, you know, it's can be a little, I was just wondering yeah. what that culture shock was like a little bit. So, uh, yeah, because I think because I had made a very good friend when I first moved to Santa Barbara, I think everything happens for a reason. You meet the people you need to meet at the right times. Um, and so this guy, Doug, that I had met, um, in my, you know, within the first few weeks of going to Santa Barbara, this guy was like Mr. California. I mean, <laughs> knew everything. He had moved out here from West Virginia and just loved it. If you said anything, even halfway sideways against California, he would like, he'd go off. <laughs> like, what are you talking about, man? This is the best. Santa Barbara alone has 1500, you know, species of plant that are indigenous only to Santa Barbara. What are you talking about? Like, and this guy would convince me to cut class and go play volleyball with him, go mountain hiking with him. I mean, this guy like loved everything about the state, loved being outdoors. Nice. And so he 
took me to LA a few times. Like we would go take road trips and go down to Los Angeles. And he just knew everything, not just about Santa Barbara, but the whole, you know, Southern seaboard, it seemed like. Um, and so between that and the internship, I'd come down to LA enough um, events, um, you know, some with some other friends, um, there, you know, and, and just even even some class trips. I remember we took one from uh, one from Santa Barbara and went to CBS Television City to watch a show being taped, and then talked to the producers. And so I'd come down enough that I, you know, I kind of felt comfortable enough with it, um, and it didn't seem as much of a culture shock when I moved down here. You know, the culture shock was Philadelphia to Santa Barbara. That was the culture shock. It was so different. I bet, yeah, from hoagies to to submarine sandwiches or whatever. Yeah, no, <laughs> right. yeah, it was a big, it was it was a big difference in terms of. I think I think for like two weeks, all I did was stare at palm trees and license plates, because it's just California and like the palm tree. And I was just like, you know, wow, I'm here because California license plates and palm trees are two things you don't see in Philadelphia. You know, I mean, I just think I was just so enamored with, um, just for the first few weeks, you know, just being. I was like, wow, I'm actually here. Um, so by the time I went to LA, it was more just kind of just a lateral move. It's like, okay, now that's where I need to live. But I had, and I had visited LA many, many times before I even moved to Santa Barbara. So I'd been on vacation and I'd been to Los Angeles. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge shock. So fast forward a few years, your first producing job, what was it? What did it teach you? How did you get it? So uh, I guess my first producing job out of school um, happened, I, I had met, uh, met up with an old friend, um, uh, Jesse, my, um, became my producing partner, uh, for 11 years we were producing partners. And so we had met up and, uh, uh, and having lunch or hanging out or whatever. And he said, he said, you know, I'm doing music videos, you know, how would you feel about directing a music video? Because I had done a little bit of directing in college and I'm like, you know, I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do. Like, you know, do I really have a passion for directing? And I, and I said, I don't really know music videos that well. Um, what if I just produced it with you and kind of, you know, sort of got my bearings and really saw what it was about. And, you know, I felt like I was good putting stuff together. Um, and then, you know, as I work on it, if there's a specific area that I really like, we can, you know, maybe I can discuss with you and if it's directing, if it's something else. I can you know, discuss that with you. So this first music video was for a, for a group called The Real Seduction. They're like an R&B group. They were, they were MC Hammer's like backup singer, dancers, you know, the guys like behind right. them that uh -huh, would be doing nice. the whole, they, they started their own R&B group. And, um, and I, yeah, so I remember like he had hit them up for, I can't remember what the budget was, five or six grand, 6,500 bucks maybe. And back then everything was 35 millimeter. There was no stuff is not being shot on digital video, not at least at a professional level. Um, so we were doing 35 mil. And um, as I started working with him, I mean, I realized somebody needs to actually physically put this together. I didn't at the time really understand the difference between a line producer, a UPM, a producer. I'm just like, I just know somebody needs to put this together. So I just sort of jumped into that line producer UPM role and started like finding crew and booking the equipment and we got to find locations and we hired a director. Um, and I was like, man, I like this because I get to be part of, of everything. I get to be part of every single part of the process as opposed to just one. Um, and, you know, throughout post, even long after the director's gone, you know, I get to, you know, all the way through delivery uh, to the client, I get to be part of the whole thing. So, so that music video was the start, I think, of my interest. I hadn't necessarily decided for a fact that, yes, 100% I want to produce, but I started liking it. I started liking that hands-on, like, wow, this is cool. I get to make... 
I'm the one, I'm the guy that's making the decisions. I get to say yes or no. You know, I, I, it was very creative. Um, it was a very creative position. Um, and so from there, I think it sort of um, escalated and we started doing, once you have one music video and you can show it to a band and they're like, oh wow, this is great. We got five grand. Do I? So my partner and I were running around Sunset Boulevard, hitting up bands at clubs and however we can meet them, uh, hustling. We were we were hustling, and that's how we um, that's how we started just doing music videos. Yeah. Where would you find the crew and the you know the directors and things? Where, where, like where were you actually finding it? Well, yeah. So yeah, back then there wasn't all these net, you know social. There was no social networks, and there wasn't um, things like that. I mean, I guess a lot of it was. If I remember, it's like so long ago. Word of mouth. Trying to think how I first built up my crew relationships. I, I guess a lot of it was word of mouth. So Jesse had already been down in LA for a year. So, you know, I know he he knew some people. It's like, hey, you know, I got this director. I think he can do it. And that director had a DP. So it's like, oh, make sure I need my little database. Okay, make sure that I lock that guy, the DP's info in for future. And then that DP is like, oh, right, I'll bring out my team. And oh, hey, there's some ACs. And, you know, so a lot of it is just networking and word of mouth. Um, you know, I think a lot of it probably also was going to events and things. Um, so ne networking events and um, some of it was some of it's school. You know, I mean, there there are people that you go to school with. I mean, I went to UCLA in '01, about a year after I moved down to LA. So um, there were definitely some. Once you're in a master's level program, a lot of those people are. That's what they're going to be doing. It's not like they're chemistry majors, but they really want to do something else. I mean, once you're mass in a master's program, it's usually like that's your career trajectory. So um, I, met, I did meet actors and DPs and production designers and stuff at UCLA. And I think that also uh, helped, you know, helped me grow my uh, crew base. Uh, so it's a lot of, yeah, it's relationships. When you went to these clubs or events on the Sunset Strip, I mean, were you going to like Gazaris or maybe I'm dating myself with that one, but the Rainbow and, and, and the Roxy, room, right? Okay, Viper and room, so the Derby, the uh, right, okay. Coconut Room. I don't think that's around anymore, but yeah, I think right, right. you and I probably both. Yeah, could. I think the FM station. I'm probably dating myself with that one, but yeah, there, oh. I think that was almost like post. You know, that was more grunge era, but were yeah, a little after the grunge mm -hmm. era, but there was still a lot um, like the Key Club. I don't think that's right, around anymore. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. And what was your approach at these? You were just, you know, I mean, it was easy to talk to people. There was no phones. People weren't pulling out phones, no to, phones to, no. to take a selfie with. I, I mean, I, there was cell phones, I think, started getting popular in 01 with the small flip phones, yes. but it wasn't as prevalent now because all you did on it was make phone calls. Sure. Mm -hmm. It wasn't texting and video and internet. Right. So, yeah, it wasn't as intrusive, but. Um, my partner was more the, not, not gregarious, He's not the, he, he, he was a good opener. He was a good schmoozer. So he did a lot of that. If, um, not, not to uh, in any way compare our careers because, but just as an analogy, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, they're like, Phew. but Simpson was very much that kind of schmoozer and idea guy. And he'd go out and he'd, you know, um, sort of he was a good opener you know um and jerry Bruckheimer was more is more like the hands-on management day-to-day -day, you know get it done guy and i think that was also jesse and i had that same kind of relationship so he would really go out and mine the opportunities and then i would come in and sit down and do meetings when it was time to talk logistics so if jesse was out at a club and he, meet, he met a band, he'd give him his business card and hey, we could do a video. And then they'd call him back and say, hey, we're really excited. Da, da, da. And Jesse would kind of schmooze him a little bit on the phone and then we would both go in. 
maybe go back to the club and meet with them. And I would talk to them about, here's how I think we can actually pull it off. And the more videos I did, obviously the more confident I got um, doing that. So I really let Jesse open it. And then I think I would close it with the execution. Here's how we're gonna execute it. How can you do a video for five grand? Well, here's how we can do it. We get great crew rates. We got relationships with this and we, you know, we can use short ends for the film and da da da, like all this kind of stuff. And they like, okay, cool. They start to see how it could be done, you know. Like the two Steves. We were just talking about that earlier. Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. So one had one set of duties, the other had the other, and it worked, right? They had two sets of skills, and right. yeah, and they, and they, I think just like, like a marriage, you know, it's mm-hmm. two people that can bring, you know, two different things to the table and make each other better in the process. And I think that's what, you know, Jesse and I were able to do is two complementary but different skills that made us better as a whole. Do you still read scripts? I do. I still read scripts. Um, because, I, because I work as a producer, for, my, my model's a little bit different. So I left Treasure in 2011. Um, I was just ready for something different. Um, Treasure was a lot to do because Treasure Entertainment, the company I had with Jesse, was a lot because... Um, you're running the company as a day-to-day sort of executive, but you're also producing projects. I also had management clients because I was managing. It was a lot to do. And, you know, it took up a lot of my time. And honestly, you know, I wanted something different. I wanted something where I felt like I was being compensated adequately for the amount of time and skill I had accrued to that point. And I said, I think I could just do better on my own. It was just time to move on and try something different. Um, but I also didn't want to continue just chasing money and trying to shop scripts and that sort of thing. And I said, yeah, I think I've built up enough um, skill, enough relationships and resources and experience that I can basically whore myself out um, as a producer for hire. I tell people I'm, I'm a whore. I am a whore. <laughs> um, in that, you know, people with a project that's got some funding behind it can come to me um, and I will look at the, the script and I'm going to be a lot less... Some people are going to like kill me for saying this, but I'm going to be a lot less discerning um, than I would if it was my money. If I'm looking to buy a script or I have to shop it, I can understand why a lot of producers will pass. If it's not that one in, one in a thousand script that they've been looking for, they're pass, 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 because they're, they're putting their you know, reputation out there as they're trying to sell it and get it made, and they need to think that you know, they, can, they can raise money for it. I don't put that same level of discernment when I read scripts. Uh, when I read a script, people are hiring me. So... Um, it's, you know, they hire me for development services to help them get their script in shape. They can hire me for budgeting services. They can hire me for a business plan or they can hire me to actually produce the project because it's a job for hire. Yes, I'll read the script. And as long as it's not a complete piece of garbage, in my opinion, I have had people take, take scripts to me, pay me to budget and then say, Oh, will you produce it? And I'll say, um, no. And they say, why not? I'm like, I just don't think it's a good script. I'll tell them straight up. This is the East coast thing we were talking about right, before. Right, earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, is I have no problem telling people I think it's I think it's it's horrible, um, and I had a client that had brought a script to me um, and had me budget it and then asked me if I would produce it and I said oh no I'm not interested in producing it, and he's like well what would it need and I said ah oh, you we would need to develop this whole script from from scratch I, I mean you you know you have issues with your main characters they you know they don't have any goals they don't have any flaws there's no central conflict I don't know who your antagonist is the story's all <laughs> over the place it's just it's it's not shoot ready. Um, even if you paid me, I just wouldn't be interested in doing it. And he said, okay, I'll start over with you. Let's go through the development. And we threw the whole budget out. He had just hired me to do. And then he paid me to help develop the script and then do a whole new budget after a year and a half of development on the script. So, um, for me, 
I tell people, you know, some people say, what's up? It's a passion project. I want someone who's passionate. I say, listen, passion doesn't keep my lights on. Once you've been doing this long enough, you like making a living and earning money doing what you're doing. Um, but if I feel like the project's lacking, but I can, but I feel like I can find my passion as we work on it. Sometimes I look at it and I say, you know, but this guy, I really like working with him. I see how we can make this project better. And I know this person who's hiring me is open to the creative de development process. They're open to hearing out my ideas and letting me, whether it's an executive producer, whether it's a lot of times I get hired by the writer director and they have financing from somewhere, but they don't want to do the day-to-day -day producing. And so I'll come on as the main producer or I'll come on as a producer with them. As long as I, I believe that they're open to the creative process and that I can read that script and go, I can I can get passionate about this. I can find my passion as we work on it. I don't need to be passionate from the second I, I, I read it. Once I sign on the dotted line, you hire me and I'm involved in producing this picture, I'm 110% into the picture. It's not, you know, well, God, I'm not so sure you're not, you're not passionate about it at first. Once I put my name on the dotted line, that picture has my undivided attention and I'm gonna make it as great as I can be. But as long as I see the potential for it to be great, and the potential for me to be able to put my fingerprints on it and be able to find my passion as we work on it, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll sign on to that. I'll sign on to that project as long as I see that potential. So my level of discernment's a little bit different than someone who's having to put up their own money and go out and chase, chase. but it allows me to work on a whole lot of other projects that I might not have otherwise even known about and, then, and also make a living doing it, which is nice when you can make a living doing what you love. Absolutely. What if all the pieces are there, but the one thing is you sense that one of the decision makers is not real flexible and you kind of have that gut feeling going in, or maybe there's things that are telltale signs. They're, they're not, it's not an instinct. You yeah. can see it. Do you say no? Do you say, well, okay, I can kind of work around this. That's a great question. Um, because I just had a phone call with a guy who was introduced to me and I could tell talking to him that we wouldn't have gotten on very well. Um, he, he comes from outside the film world you know, to me, he seemed like a guy who thinks he knows more than he does know. And so, um, I, you know, I like people who are going to bring me on because I bring a certain skill set and knowledge that they don't have and that they're going to listen to me. And, and when it comes to those sort of areas that I know about, they're going to defer to me. And if I don't feel like that's going to be the case, it's probably not the best fit. So even if, if one of, even if one of, if there's a consortium of people, and even if, if I feel like even one of them might be problematic, yeah, I'll pass. I mean, life's too short at the end of the day. I still want to work with people that I want to work with. I've been fortunate and blessed enough that nine times out of 10, the people I'm introduced to are, you know, they're go-getters, they have a creative vision, they're excited about their project, and they're, and they're open to that creative process. And I just, I lay, I, I used to say is, I, like, I just need three things from you. I need a script, I need your budget, I need you to get the hell out of my way. <laughs> and I guess it's a joke, you know, half joking, but it's true, meaning, right. le, but let me do what I do. Mm -hmm. And so many of the people that hire me, they are writers or directors or executive producers that don't know enough about filmmaking and that's exactly what they want. They say, well, I just want to direct. I, I know the story I want to take, but I need a producer can come help me realize this vision. And I'll talk to them about it and I'll say, hey, here's, here's a way I think we can do this and here's a way I think we can take what you've done and, and make it even better and elevate the material. Would you be willing to do it? And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's actually great. I, can, I, can, I, get, that, I get that sort of feeling from them that in those initial meetings um, that we'd work great together. And a lot of times they hire me for a service and I tell them, you can hire me to develop your script. You can hire me to budget it. Does not mean I'm attached to your picture as a producer. But that's a good thing for me because it also, during that phase, allows me to feel them out and see 
throughout that budgeting phase, throughout that development phase, or the business plan, or whatever we're doing, do I like working with them? Do I like them as much as, it's not just them interviewing me, it's me interviewing them. And usually by the time we're done that process, nine times out of 10, they're like, you know, if they have, if they have the financing together, they're like, I, I want you to produce this, let's, let's go. And I know by that point as well whether I want to move forward. And like I said, nine times out of ten, I'm like, great, let's do it. So over the course of the years, it sounds like you've honed that, whether it's uh, phrases that you've heard someone say where you know, yes, this is going to be a working relationship, or no, I don't think this is going to work. So you, you, is it much faster for you now? You can kind of know yeah. right off the bat? Oh, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure it's much faster now knowing whether I want to work with certain people. Absolutely. I mean, and part of it is just learning to trust your instincts. I mean, I think when you're starting off, you're so hungry. A lot of times you're willing to ignore red flags. Um, but, you know, as I've gone, like I'm not desperate for work. I'm not, you know, I, I can be, I can still be somewhat, you know, somewhat discerning if I want. Um, you know, I just, I think, you know, you set your rules, you set your parameters, you know, I'm very clear now with people in the nicest possible way when people come to me like, hey, I have this script and I want, I need to raise money. And I'm like, you know, I don't shop scripts. I don't raise money. Here's what I do do. And once you have your equity together, you feel free to talk to me. If you want to bring me on as, you know, for hire, I work for you. So at the end of the day, um, and like, oh, great. And I've had people come back to me and say, hey, I got my, you know, they, they, they appreciate you being upfront. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've learned to, to notice red flags quick and if, you know, if I see a couple of them, I can, I'll just, uh, you know, I, I don't feel uncomfortable walking away. What five things does a screenplay have to have for you to be interested in it as a producer? Five things? Yeah. What five <laughs> things? I never thought about um, breaking it down to five things. Um, you know, I think, you know, first and foremost for me um, is the script just has to be, you know, in, in my eyes, like well-written. So, you know, it's got to be a, like, I think a story that, and I don't care what the story is in terms of genre or, you know, people ask me like, do you, do you care, you know, do you care about a certain genre? And you seem to work in all different genres. I said, yeah, because I mean, to me, a good story transcends genre. It has nothing to do with genre. Genre is just sort of a set of conventions that allow people to identify what kind of movie it is and, and therefore whether they want to see it or not. But genre has nothing to do with whether you could tell a good story in any genre. And to me, working in different genres is part of the excitement of working in this business. Like, like that's why so many of us love being in this business, right? We don't go to the same office necessarily every day and we can, we're always pursuing something different. And so the, the, having different genres to work in is, is great. So to me, it's just a well-told story. Like, is there some sort of character, some sort of protagonist? Can I identify with his journey in some way? I'm not even going to use the word likable. I'm just going to say, is it like a protagonist I can identify with in some way? I want to follow him for some reason. Um, you know, is the, does he have goals? Does he have flaws? Is there an antagonist that's creating conflict with this guy, and, you know, or girl, or whatever the, the situation is? But is there, is there something I can get behind? And um, you know, is there a, is there a strong theme? Like, why are you telling this story? So, I mean, I, you know, I think just in terms of just being well written, and then I would say number two is then what's um, you know the budget range, and is it a budget range that's reasonable? So a lot of people. They come to me and I get a lot of, how much would it cost to do this script? And I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll answer that question if you can answer a question for me. How long's a piece of string? That's what I like to ask them. You can't just give me a script, how much does it cost to make that? Was Matt Damon in your movie? Right, well, your budget just went up by $10 million. I mean, I can make an argument to do this movie for a million bucks or 10 million bucks. Um, so really it's more like, well, how much can you raise? And then, you know, or, or how much do you have? Or you know, if they, if they really don't have a good idea of this, who, who do you see in it? How wide do you see it being distributed? But I have to get an idea of sort of what, 
range and how big they're seeing this in their head. And a lot of times I might read the, not a lot of times, but sometimes I might read the script and go, well, that's not going to, that's not going to happen on this. You know, you're not going to do Avatar on a $500,000 budget or whatever. Um, so it has to be doable, um, you know, for the, for the, for the budget. Um, you know, and, be, and, and beyond that too, just, I guess, logistically feasible. So, you know, for me to do, I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I look at it and I go, yeah, I mean, you know, the budget, the budget's okay. It's, it's possible, but I think for some other logistical reason, it would be very challenging to pull this off. Even if it's, you know, budget wise, it can be done. Um, you know, there might be something else I might see that, that would make it, that would preclude it from being, um, you know, or actually, actually at least allowing me to do it effectively for whatever that reason is. But I think those are really the two main, main things that I look for is just, you know, is the budget reasonable for the, for the script and is the script, um, you know, well-written, uh, and beyond that, do I like working with this person? Um, do I, you know, do I get a good, good sense because you're going to spend a year or more, um, dealing with this person depending on the scope of my duties. So, you know, sometimes I'm just literally brought on to, there's no development. I'm like, okay, the script's decent, you know, and I think I can influence it enough through the production process to make it a good, a good picture. And then at post, when I deliver the master drive or the DCP or whatever the final deliverable is, I'm done. I'm not involved in marketing or distribution. There are projects like that. It just depends on the term of the contract. So, but I would say at the least, I'm spending at least a year with this person. So, um, so yeah, well-written script, reasonable budget and logistics. And, um, and I like the person. Those are really my main criteria. I don't know if I can get to five. I don't think I can get to five. <laughs> those I don't think three, right? Any, yeah. I think there could be like sub, there could be sub factors within there, but those are sort of the broad scope factors. I noticed you said something about going to a day job and I just want to ask you about that. Did you ever try a day job and, mm-hmm. and how did you know it wasn't for you and how did you know you liked the, not uncertainty, but the, the variation yeah. of producing? I did, I, did, I did have day jobs. Um, my first job with my um, old producing partner, Jesse, was with, I worked for Bobby Newmeyer who um, produced uh, the, quint- the quintessential indie film mo- movie that started the entire movement as we know it today. It's like indie film as we know it today. Bobby produced the movie that started it all, which is Sex, Lies, and Videotape oh, back in 89, right? Fantastic. I mean, that was the one. That was before right. Pulp Fiction and Clerks or any of those. I mean, that was like the one. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were indie movies before, that, like, like Blood Simple and stuff, but they didn't kick off the movement the way Sex, Lies did. Like That was like this whole groundbreaking thing that inspired filmmakers to like, hey, we can do this. Um, and so he was a great mentor. And so I worked for him as an assistant. And so my old producing partner, Jesse was also, we were both his assistants. So day job working for Bobby, we were working on training day on the movie training day Mm -hmm. and on uh, another movie called national security with Martin Lawrence and Steve Zahn. It was a comedy like buddy. Right. Right. Kind of cop. And then Santa Claus two, we had in development. So Bobby was very prolific. Um, and then at night that's when we were like hitting up bands and shooting videos on weekends and things. Um, so, you know, I worked for him throughout 2000 to like the beginning of 2001. I got into UCLA and that's why, I mean, I couldn't be an assistant and because right. the hours are just too, especially for like a big producer. Um, but, I, but I learned a lot about the studio system working for Bobby because he had deals with Warner Brothers and Intermedia. Um, and so it was a good, you know, it was a good learning experience and I was just starting off. And then I had the luxury of not having to work a day job throughout school because I was living on school loans when I was at UCLA and the classes were at night so I could work on building my business in the day and go to school at night. Um, but when I got out of school, it was like, you know, I mean, we hadn't gotten to the point where I could live on, live on the money yet. So I got a job working for 
um, a trailer house as an assistant called Open Road. Um, and they're owned by a company called New Wave in Burbank. New Wave Entertainment is a pretty big company. Um, and I kind of transitioned up, up through the ranks in New Wave um, and became a supervisor for the print department. So we did all the posters for like, we did like you know, Borat and Fantastic Four. And like it had, we had done a lot of, you know, Simpsons and stuff, um, Fox stuff. And so I was doing music videos and commercials and some indie feature stuff while I was also working that day job up wow. until about 07. And that's when I was able to, I was at a, at a point where I could finally kind of go full time and, and like eke out a living. Um, and um, yeah, and so for the next like four years, I mean, I was full time treasure entertainment until I left. Yeah, that was good, yeah. Do you think it's a mistake for a filmmaker to think about distribution and marketing after yeah. they've made the movie? Okay. I absolutely, 100% think it is a mistake to only start thinking about marketing and distribution after the film is done. I, and again, I'm gonna say more things that are gonna piss people off, is I really think the film schools have it all wrong. And you know, I mentioned that guy um, that I spoke with recently who I just didn't feel like I would get along with, and he, he's one of these guys that like just doing it for the passion. And then I, I explained to him, you know, there's a reason we call it show business and not show show. And I stole that from Peter Gruber, by the way, who was one of my professors at UCLA, and he used to say this. There's, it's not show show, it's show business. If you just want to go out and make a piece of art for yourself, and you have the money to blow, you know, go ahead. But that doesn't mean you're going to be part of the entertainment industry. That doesn't mean you're going to be part of the film business. It is a business, it is a commodity, as well as art. That's where people get hung up as well. It's art, right. It's art, but it's also a commodity. And the people sacrifice one for the other. And I, re I read an article the other, the other, you know, maybe it was a couple months ago, that just, oh my God, my head, it was like a cartoon. My head was like, <laughs> I, was so, I was so annoyed with this article. Um, it's, it's, it just started with, okay, now you've finished your film. Now it's start, start, time to start thinking about distribution. I'm like, no, 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 it's not. I was starting to start thinking about distribution ages ago. Like, from the script stage, you should have been thinking about distribution. Um, and I, I've told, you know, I've told filmmakers I've worked with, the smart way to do it is, I mean, they always have this script that they just really want to do. And like, well, have you considered your audience? Have you considered whether there's an audience for it? Have you considered how you're going to get to that audience? Have you considered, you know, what, how big that audience is and whether it justifies the budget you want to, um, you want to spend, and et cetera, et cetera. Have you, have, you, have, you, have you looked at the market and how many other films just like it are out in the market, how oversaturated that is? Um, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, oh, I'm going to do horror because it's so cheap so you can make a bunch of money. And I'm like, but you're only considering one thing. You're only considering budget. You're not considering drawbacks of horror, like the fact that when you go to AFM, there's 18 other films with posters on the wall that look exactly like yours, all competing for that same shelf space or that same uh, distributor who only has a budget to acquire so many films. Um, you're not considering the fact that a lot of name talent doesn't like to do horror, which I was up against on my latest film, The Basement, was it was tough. To, even casting directors know that, and a lot of casting directors don't want to touch horror hmm. because they know a lot of name actors just avoid horror movies. Um, which is why so many times you see horror movies with most of the time with like nobody in it that you really recognize. Um, unless there's like really smart, different sort of horror, you know, maybe you see some people take a chance on it. But, you know, they're not necessarily looking at it like a business. I, t I tell people there's, there's no other industry in, in which you would spend millions and millions and millions of dollars like on R&D and develop, you know, developing like widgets and mass producing widgets. I'm going to set up a big manufacturing space, big warehouse. I'm going to make widgets. And I've got this whole staff of people boxing up widgets. And then when I'm done, I have this huge warehouse of widgets. And I'm like, all right, now let me figure out how I can sell these. No, you, you identify a, a need in the market. Like, hey, this, people are renting or buying these kind of movies. And 
you know, I, there, you know, there's definitely a, um, uh, an opportunity here. And I have a great story I think I can tell within that and consulting with distributors and sales agents who know the marketplace. And if, if, you, know, if you don't want to, if you're afraid to, to get the distributors and sales agents involved early and find out what the market looks like and what kind of, what buyers are looking for and what budget ranges those pictures are in and which ones are making money. If you don't want to do that and then you make a picture and you make no money, you know, you really don't have anyone to blame but yourself. Um, it's, it's absolutely the end use and the marketing and the distribution, distribution and publicity, festivals, all that. You should be looking at that from the beginning, from, from inception of your story. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of times it falls on deaf ears, but I, I always advise the filmmakers that we should get distributors and sales agents involved from the get-go. I'm not saying it's going to make it's going to make it foolproof that you're going to get a return on your investment because of that, but it's going to, um, I think, get you a lot closer. I think, are they always right? No. They're, I mean, they can be wrong as well, but they know a lot more than we do. Just like you trust a DP to shoot the picture because he knows more about lighting and camera than you do or an editor because he knows a lot more about cutting than you do. Distributors and sales agents know more about selling in the market than you do. And so if you want a better chance at getting some sort of return, involve people that know more about what they do than you do about what they do. And I say this all the time when I hire people. I said, look, I hired you because you know more about what you do than I know about what you do. So I'm gonna tell you the result I want. I'm gonna tell you when I want it by. I'm gonna tell you what resources I'm gonna give you to get me that result. And if you say, yep, I can do it. I'm gonna say, great, go do it then. And I'm here to support you, you tell me, hey, you know, I, you know, I just I need you to do this or that. As long as it's within those parameters, done. If there's a problem, we'll fix it, you know, and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. So, you know, trust but verify. But I don't stand over their shoulders, you know, making. I, I hired you because this is what you do, and you're better at it than I am. So go do it. And the crew loves that. And you should the sales agents and the distributors treat them like part of your team because. By the time people have made their movie and come to the distributors, the distributors are like, well, there's not much we can do with it now. We could try to craft a marketing campaign, but we're, you know, if you had this person in it and if you had only spent this much and if you had done these things with the story, we'd be in a lot better of a position. Now, all we have, we, we, we didn't have any say in the story or script. We didn't have any say in the casting. We didn't have any say in the budget. Now, all we have is the marketing campaign, but we're stuck with the movie we have. There's not much we can do with it now. Um, so I am absolutely a fan of, of people getting distributors and sales agents or talking to them, producers, reps, whoever you can that knows the marketplace, get them involved as early as possible. Do you remember your first film market? Like what that was like, like walking around, whether it was AFM or something, I mean, just, just surprises, things that you were kind of shocked by? Yeah. Um, I think it was AFM actually was probably the first one I had ever gone to. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, you walk in cause it's held in Santa Monica and the Lamarigo and the Lowe's kind of like right, right, right next to the Lowe's, I guess is the main one, but, um, and that sort of spills over into like, you know, sort of outside areas and things. But I do remember, cause I remember parking and, and being there for a meeting and then coming out a couple hours later and them charging me like $80 for parking. <laughs> I'm like, are you insane? Welcome to Santa Monica. Yeah. I was like, you're, this is insane. And I think next time I parked at the beach for 20 bucks and just, I was like, I mean, it's like, not like, it's just to me, it's like a value thing. Like I'm seriously wasting that much money on parking. That's right. Coming from Philadelphia where you could park anywhere and not pay. So I remember that. Um, and you know, the food and drinks are outrageous, but I think the AFM for me was probably, um, it was a little eye opening, but also I didn't feel like I, I got 
personally a huge amount of value out of it because a lot of people I'm meeting with were people that live in LA. And so I didn't, I didn't at the first one, I didn't really get a, an opportunity to meet a lot of new, I was meeting with people who, who were based here. I'm like, God, why am I paying 80 bucks for parking and 60 bucks for a sandwich and a drink or whatever to meet with people I can just set up meetings with after AFM. So, um, you know, in subsequent years, I wanted to make sure if I was gonna go to AFM, I would only go if I really had some specific reason to be there, a picture I was I was working on, or meetings with people from out of town that I couldn't otherwise meet with, and not one on video, big on video calls. Um, like if I'm going to get all ready and comb the hair and get all, you know, it's because I'm going out. I don't want to have to do that just for a video call. I mean, half the time when I'm talking on the phone, I look like I look like a complete slob. So <laughs> I don't want just to do a phone call. I don't want to get all. So I was going to the AFM for in subsequent years to, to actually meet people that I didn't have the opportunity to, to interact with face to face. Um, and, and more specifically, um, if I had a project and a reason I needed to be there, because a lot of times, you know, I have a sales agent or I have a rep that's there and there's no reason to buy $2,000 badges to go up in the suites. If I have a team there, like, no, you don't need me to go up in the suites, um, you know, with you. So, um, I think AFM is, is, it's good, it's, it's good for what it's for, which is, you know, buyers and sellers to interact and to negotiate and discuss deals from sort of a top level and then you can do the, you know, you can do the sort of nuanced stuff later, but sort of just, um, you know, getting FaceTime, generating rapport, check out these materials. It's good for the buyers and sellers to come together. A lot of times I don't need to be um, directly there. I, I give my rep, whoever's selling my picture, I, I tell them, you know, here's, here's what I want out of it. And then I, again, let them go do what they're good at. But is a filmmaker able to get business cards? So maybe they can kind of like, you can gauge a lot just by like watching two people talk and you can kind of gauge the feel. So is yeah. that something you can yeah. do is just get business cards for when? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could. I, you know, I, I guess I don't go there that often just to get business cards. I mean, you know, if I'm there anyway, sure. Um, I really don't find it that challenging to meet people from even all around the world because projects that I... I'm working on, I'm constantly meeting new people, I'm constantly getting introduced to new people and then through social media, I mean, LinkedIn and Facebook and um, you know, even my own website. I mean, I constantly have people from all around the world, whether it's, it could be a DP in, in England, it could be a visual effects company in India. Um, it could be somebody who just moved here from Australia and hey, I'm on you know, DIT and I, whatever. I feel like I, I just through the course of my business and through social media, I meet so many people that I don't need to drive down to Santa Monica and pay 80 bucks to get business cards. It just doesn't, the world's becoming so interconnected nowadays anyway. Um, you know, and if you don't have somebody to fit a certain position, it's so easy to, to find those people now. Um, I'm looking at possibly shooting a picture in Australia. I reached out to um, Film Australia's LA office. And next thing I know, I mean, and Michelle Sandoval there is fantastic. She's the point person um, and she and she's kind of in charge of, of the operation there and she started introducing me to you know hey yeah I've got a guy in Australia he does you know he does this that and the other they do debt financing in Australia oh and this guy you know I've, I can you know introduce you to a UPM in Queensland and you know next thing I know I'm emailing and chatting with a UPM in Queensland I mean it's just so you know do I need to go to AFM to do that I don't think I really do
Forgive my naivete, but why does Name Talent not want to do horror? Is the budget too low, or is there a stigma attached? I think it's. I think Name Talent is probably more averse to horror because of the stigma. I don't think it has to do because I mean some horror pictures have decent budgets, and I mean you 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 could be going after. I'd be going after maybe the same names I'd be going after um, if it was um, a romance or a comedy on that same budget level. So I don't think it's the money. Um, I, I do think it's more the stigma. I had. Um, several of my horror picture I had several casting directors pass we had trouble finding a cast we were willing to pay them you know decent you know a decent salary and a lot of them just didn't want to take it and I think because they felt like it was going to be tough to get even even a modest modest names um, on board you know a, a horror movie that was you know it's not it's not like seven where it's like this kind of smart thriller with some kind of really pseudo-horror-esque elements. It's like straight horror, it's a tough sell. Um, and I think a lot of yeah, a lot of actors don't feel like maybe um, if, they're, if they're already established that they need to do that genre, that it's gonna help elevate their career. They wanna do more serious work or you know whatever, whatever that might be. I'm not saying I agree with that. Um, I think our, our picture of the basement, I thought had a really unique, interesting storyline, very, this great kind of psychological horror it had some gruesome moments, but I think those gruesome moments were enough to like sort of scare people away. Um, so yeah, I think that stigma, um, you know, it could be the managers telling them like you don't want to do horror because maybe even if it's not the stigma, the stigma is not real. Perception is reality. So if it's perceived enough to be there, then they're just like better steer clear. You're getting offers on these other you know dramas romantic comedies, action pictures, do those because there is no stigma with those, so go ahead, they're safe. That's my you know, assessment, and I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but from what I've seen, that's definitely actors avoiding horror pictures, you know, outside of big studio ones, are, is definitely real um, because I've experienced it firsthand, but that would be my assessment on why. 12 questions every screenwriter has to be able to answer about their screenplay. The 12 questions. Did I send you the 12 questions or no? How'd you get the 12 questions? Um, yeah, I, so I, I, told, I mentioned earlier I was a manager, a literary manager. So only, I only did writers and directors um, for about eight years. And so I had, I'm going to give Meg LaFoe, um, who I mentioned earlier, Jody's, Jody Foster's producing partner, was um, a great influence on me. And she had this series of questions, and I, it might have been eight or ten, um, to get us thinking about the story we wanted to tell. And um, so when I started managing, I sort of took those questions and you know expanded them a little bit, reappropriated them a little bit. So I, I came up with twelve. Um, and so every time I had a writer come to me with with a story that they were working on, and it could have been, you know, it could have been the synopsis phase or the treatment phase, or, or it could have been a finished script, but it had a lot of problems. I'd say, okay, let's rewind and let's go back to the fundamentals. Or even if they just had an idea but they hadn't written anything yet. Take a look at these questions. Can you answer these questions? And um, you know, the, the, the questions are are things like, um, what's the genre? Is it studio or independent? Um, who's your protagonist? What's their goal? Um, what's their flaw? Um, who's the main relationship? Like, what's driving um, the story? Um, who's your audience? Um, who's the antagonist? What's their goal and their flaw? Um, you know, what's the narrative question? driving the film. So like every story, you should be able to sum it up in one main question. Like so, like die, if I was die hard would be like, you know, will 
the, you know, a New York cop trapped, you know, will this New York cop free his wife and hostages from some European terrorists who have them trapped in a skyscraper? Like, it's like one question, right? Like, so like, what's your narrative question driving this story? And what's your theme? And what's your thematic question? Like, what's, why are you telling this? The thematic question is like the question you pose to the audience. It could be a moral question, it could be, or something else, but some question you want them to think about, like, is family really just people you're related to, or is it something more? You know, it could be a thematic question. It's, it's not overtly stated in the story, but it's kind of like in the film's subconscious. It's like what, you know, the film is really kind of about. And then your theme is how you answer that question by the end. That's your, the theme of your, your story. So, like, what are those things? Um, and I might even be missing a couple, I, but off the top of my head, those are like a lot of, and if you can't answer those questions, or if those questions don't make sense together, a lot of times there's the problems with the story. So for example, if you say your protagonist's goal is, my protagonist's goal is to grab the banana. And what's your antagonist's goal? To grab the orange. Well, they're in two different movies. They're never gonna intersect, there's no conflict. Great, your protagonist grabs the banana and your antagonist grabs the orange, movie's over. And that's a very simplistic example, but those are the kind of things, but on a deeper level we look at and we go, well, here, there's a few things that aren't making sense. You say your main relationship is character A and character B, but your antagonist is character C. They're not even in your main relationship that's moving the story forward. So why are they your, why are they your antagonist? Um, so the 12 questions from, and this is from amateur writers who have never had anything sold, what I you know, call development cases, people that you're, you have a belief in because they're talented and you're trying to get them there. All the way up to you know experienced screenwriters who have had you know a half dozen pictures produced, um, you know the they, the twelve questions is a great sort of reset. Okay, let me square away. Let me you know even if I've done this a hundred times, every story is different. And a lot of times you miss those those important details. And once I think the twelve questions are are making sense now and things are tying together, I'm like oh now see how the protagonist goal ties into your theme. Okay, now everything starts puzzle pieces start making sense. Then I say, okay, now, now let's work out a synopsis. Three or four paragraphs, you know, first act, second act, third act, whatever. Just to, so we can say, okay, now let's make sure from just a broad story standpoint that all those questions are being addressed. And then from there you can expand it to a full treatment and a scene outline and then, then start writing your script. Because like I explained to them, a lot easier to develop the story in a synopsis form or a treatment form than it is to keep rewriting the script when there's fundamental problems in it. You don't start building the building and you go, oh, it's slanted. All right, let's start taking out some bricks and try to get straight. You work all of that out in the design phase and the blueprint phase, and so that's what I try to get them to do. And the 12 questions is, is to me, is like, okay, that's that beginning, that, that organic seed that we need to plant to make a healthy tree grow. And when presented with those 10 questions or whatever it is, do most screenwriters see the vague areas of their, of their story, or are a lot of them very sort of stuck on those ideas and they, they, it makes sense to them, but they're not willing to waver? No, I, I find that they're usually very, very open. Um, you know, I mean, again, if they're not going to be open to the process, you know, to the creative development process, they're, I mean, they're not gonna, I'm not going to be able to do much with them. I mean, I'm, I think most of them, they're coming to me because they know there's something wrong. Mm. You know, if they think it's great, then, hey, whatever. If I read the script and I go, yeah, okay, yeah, I think this is decent. And I'll go with it. And we might bring, you might know, have them or bring another writer in, writer in to do polishes or something. But um you know, uh, most of the time when they when they come to me um, to develop the script, to work with them, they know something's wrong. So that's why I said, well, let's go back to those fundamentals. And I don't necessarily answer the questions for them. I just sometimes, I mean, sometimes I can, I'll come up with ideas and say, well, maybe when I was reading your story, I felt like your theme was a little more about this. And I go, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Sometimes I can articulate or pull, pull out what they were trying to get to quicker than they can. 
But a lot of times it's just me pointing out discrepancies. Like, you know, you say, you know, that you want to do sort of, you know, this, this, and this, which, you know, makes, makes it feel like you want it very small and this and that, but you also say you want to do a studio picture. But is that what studios are buying? Is that what studios are putting out? And I might just call out some discrepancies um, and think, oh yeah, okay, you're right. Maybe this is more indie or, and we discuss it and we talk about it. But I think getting on the same page, getting, getting those things so they're making sense makes all of the rest of the stuff much, much, much easier. So I don't get a lot of pushback. I don't get a lot of pushback because a lot of it's coming from them. It's just me pointing out, guiding them. Most independent filmmakers, do they feel they can compete with Hollywood? Or do you think they realize like, no matter how great this passion project is or this coming of age drama, horror, whatever, mm. it's never going to be able to compete it's a it's the rare gem that transcends that somehow is discovered and and has a life of its own. Well, let me ask you: When you say compete, you mean compete with studio pictures or compete with indies that have gained a lot of notoriety? Or yeah, this you know there because there is this like indie sort of world, but the the world of it is is like yeah. in this million dollar range, which doesn't feel really indie to most quote unquote new indie filmmakers. Right. So do you think that a lot of indie filmmakers that are doing this, whether they're crowdfunding, whether they're using family money and it's a very small budget, realize that it's going to be very difficult or maybe it's not if the, if the story catches on to the sort of upper echelon indie uh, yeah. films? I don't think, I don't think a lot of the filmmakers I deal with even think that far ahead or if they do, they don't express it to me. Um, I, I I think a lot more so focused on their project that they're not necessarily thinking about how it will do in the marketplace. And that's what I'm trying to get them to think more about. So, some of them who do uh, have an overinflated sense of, I think, what it can do um, in the market. And I try to temper that a bit. Um, you know, I, I had a great experience working with um, w William Liu, who directed Comfort. Um, and Comfort was one of the lowest budget. You want to talk about real indie? I mean, it was one of the, it was like the second, I think it was like the second lowest budgeted narrative picture I'd ever done. Um, not including docs, documentary, or like new media stuff, but just in terms of like feature films. Second, like the second lowest budget I'd ever done. And I read the script, and I was like, wasn't that excited about it when I first read the script. I'm like, yeah. But I saw enough in it that, okay, like I think with the right execution, I could do something with this. And I brought um, another writer in to help polish the script with Will to you know cut down on a lot of the chatty, chatty dialogue, the overwritten dialogue and things. Um, but where Will was really, really good was in listening to others and like i say like you know these people are on board because they're better at what they do than you are at what they do and let your cinematographer take your vision and let him you know figure out how to shoot it you say i want this shot and i want it blue okay but let him figure out how to do that shot and make it blue and then move on. you know move on and talk to the actors and if the actors have ideas let them play around let them try stuff and he was willing to um, experiment a little bit he was willing to listen to other people's ideas and it made that picture so much better um, than I think it could have been just on the page, um, from what you you know what you what you read on the page. But when we started working on this, you know, I was like, well, let me see. So it's a drama. It's starring you know two kids, Chinese American kids that no one's ever heard of. You have no name stars in this. We have a very small, limited production budget. P and A and marketing is probably going to be even more anemic than that. Um, I said, you're not going to make one dime on this movie. I just want you to know this. You're going to make no money. Zero. You won't make anything. He's like, okay, I just want to do it anyway. I'm like, all right, as long as you understand that, you know, you're doing it for yourself or the story you just need to tell for the art or whatever, but it's not going to be, um, 
anything more than that. Now, in the back of my head, as a producer, I wanted to be more than that, but I wanted to set those that bar where I felt like it was even a little bit below realistic, just so to make sure you're on the same page. And the film turned out as one of the films that I'm like most proud of, even though, again, budget really had nothing to do with it. I think Will's understanding of story and how, and his ability to execute, to listen to others and take the best ideas as a director, and he was just a great collaborative partner, um, made that film what it was, and, and we sold it to a number of different territories and it continues to make money. When he made, got his first check, I was like, congratulations, I was wrong, you made, <laughs> you made, more, than, made, you made more than nothing, congratulations. Um, and uh, um, that, you know, I think that's sort of a testament to, um, you know, to the process and to his willingness to be, to be open to the creative process. But uh, I try to get filmmakers thinking about it from a business standpoint and tempering any sort of unrealistic ex- expectations. I think that's a big, um, you know, especially when they're not willing to involve sales agents or distributors or other people who know the marketplace when they just want to do the project they want to do. I want to look at, and sometimes you might get a script and say, well, yeah, I think with the right casting, if we can keep it to this budget level, I, I do believe it can do pretty well based on what I've seen. Still not going to be as knowledgeable as the guys who are selling and buying every day, but I, you know, I can, I have a, a, some sense. I think just being working in the industry and constantly speaking to those people about, you know, okay, what's doing well, and you know, you want to do this kind of picture with the right casting. Yeah, I think this could do, this could do pretty well. Um, but yeah, I think I think managing expectations is a big part of the indie world. These guys that come in with these pipe dream kind of, you know, they they're going to expect the stars, you know, the sun and the moon. Um, you know, you have to you have to rein that in a little bit. It's better to I think it's better to under promise and over deliver than the other way around. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever optioned or bought a screenplay? I, I have optioned and bought screenplays, yeah. Under Treasure Entertainment. Oh, okay. So before I went freelance, I, yeah, we used to all the time. And a lot of them came from our clients as well. Um, Can you take us through the process? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in terms of at least when, you know, in Treasure Entertainment, when we would... Um, Part of what I liked about managing clients is you had this in-house stable of talent that you could draw from. So if we had identified something in the market, um, you know, an opportunity, um, or, or, so, or you know, for some reason we wanted to do a certain type of picture, I you know had clients in-house. I said, hey, what about one of these ideas? Because this is something that we're thinking about doing. If we can develop this with you and get it to the point where I think it's strong. Maybe we'll option it from you guys, or we'll, you know, we'll, we'll buy it. So, um, not to say we didn't shop around, but it kind of allowed us to just get exactly what we wanted, working with the writer, and then getting it to okay, this is what we want. Okay, we'll option it now, um, as opposed to scouring the marketplace trying to find that exact kind of thing we wanted. But um, yeah, I mean, once once we identified a um, uh, a strong project, either something that we came across or something that we had a client. Um, create with our help. Um, the optioning process was, you know, pretty simple. I mean, you know, a lot of times we just do, you know, one year option with a, with a, you know, one year renewal period and, um, you know, whatever sort of modicum of, depending on the size of the, the film, I mean, options can be, we pay anything from a dollar just to, you know, if it's, you know, real development writer and they're like, look, I just want to get it out there. And it's like, all right, well, let's just see if we can get this thing out here. We're putting our sweat equity into it. So it might just be a, a $1. You have to have something called consideration. There has to be something from this side going to this side to make it legal. And even if that's a dollar, here's a dollar, here's your script. Um, and an option is just basically saying, um, 
you know, you can't sell it to anyone else during this period. We have the exclusive right to shop it, to set it up, or to buy it during this period. And if we exercise the option here, we'll give you $10,000, $20,000, whatever, whatever the amount is, and then the option is exercised. So it, just, it gives us the option to buy it exclusively for that period. Um, or we might have optioned things up to, I don't know, 1,000 bucks or 2,000 bucks. I mean, it just depended on the, the size of the, the project. It was all indie stuff, so, you know, I mean, they weren't getting $10,000 options, but, you know, 500 bucks or whatever it is. And then that applies against the purchase price. So if you option something for 500 bucks and you're gonna buy the script for 20 grand, that 500 is typically applied against the 20. So you pay the 19.5 if you decide to buy it. Uh, although those deals can be structured however, you know, however you want. Um, so yeah, I think that was, um, that's kind of how, how we approached it was, hey, in-house talent, awesome. And because we were their managers and we, they saw all the sweat equity we were putting into trying to get their career off the ground and the project, a lot of times we could option a script for a lot less than if we had just found it and they didn't know us and they were like, well, I want $3,000 for this, you know. We had already built this relationship and, um, and so it was a good, you know, it was a good system. It worked for us. What about life story rights? Yeah, um, I, I'm working on a, a project right now actually called um, Walking on Palmettos with um, yeah, writer Jim Christel and uh, Ed Asner, who you know is like screen legend, uh, good old Ed. And um, the story is based on a real life um, person, um, Miles Richards, who's very actively involved in the project as well as an executive producer. And he, he had met Jim many years ago um, through a mutual friend, and Jim found this guy's story so interesting. Um, he sat down, he interviewed him, like a tape recorder for hours. I mean, I don't know, it was like maybe a couple days worth of interviews, but they, you know, he got all, he's like, wow, this guy's story is so interesting, and decided, you know, this is the kind of story that, that would make a great, at first I think he was thinking about a TV show, but then he decided, let me make this into a, a script, a feature script. And, um, I got involved when Jim came to me and asked me to do a budget. And it's a pretty, a fairly large picture, I would say. It's like almost maybe even studio mid-level kind of budget. Um, and uh, I got, you know, did the budget and, he, and Jim was very happy with the work and decided, asked me if I would come on and, uh, as a producer and work with, work with him on it. And I, I, you know, I came on board and I asked him, I said, do you have the Miles life rights? This guy, Miles, it's extraordinary, you know, kind of, human being he was he was actually a marijuana smuggler um and had started when he was like 21 or something and in, 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 in smuggled his first like you know batch of marijuana from jamaica he was working on the playboy club his father his father owned the construction company that was building the playboy club in jamaica and he went there for a summer to work on it and that's where he got involved in marijuana and started smuggling it and his first load when he was like 21 he made like a quarter million dollars this is in the 60s oh wow and so right so the thing about Miles was he never did a load the same way twice. He always, there's always some innovative way. Um, and the, the script goes, the story goes into a couple of these. I mean, there's there so many different ways. But but uh, like he sank a ship off the coast of Florida on purpose, loaded with water-sealed bags of marijuana, filed for a permit to do a salvage operation. So the Coast Guard got to know him. And then every, you know... They're salvaging, bringing up parts of the boat with, you know, marijuana in it. And the Coast Guard's like right there and they had no idea. I mean, he came with these ingenious. Wow. So it took the um, DEA like 15 years to even know who he was, another five years to catch him. And, you know, it's very much catch me if you can, um, good fellas, like the tonally, like the, the likable criminal. Sure. That you sure. follow over, <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street, you follow over 
20 years of their life, kind of that kind of arc and their comeuppance and sort of, you know, the sort of life trajectory is Miles did go to prison. He was there for 11 years. He was in solitary confinement for four years, came out a very different person. Then he started a whole legal business and construction became a millionaire legally. Um, but it was, uh, it was a really interesting story. And I asked, do you have Miles life rights for this? And he didn't. And I said, well, that's the first thing we need to do. Um, and so, you know, we, we went to Miles. And at that point, we had already worked with him long enough that he knew us and trusted us. I mean, I had talked to him on the phone. I've never met him personally, but I talked to him on the phone. Jim had, you know, been dealing with him for years. And so I had a life rights option um, drafted up. And, um, you know, and Miles signed off on it. I mean, we had certain agreements with him that we wouldn't, while we can take creative license, that there were certain things we wouldn't do. Miles wanted to make sure the smuggling was depicted realistically. He's like, look, just don't have anybody running around with a suitcase of a million dollars that looks like this. He's like, I know what a million dollars looks like in a suitcase and $1,500 bills. And it's not like what they look like in these movies where it's, you know, these big suitcases stacked to the brim with hundreds. And he's like, that's not what a million dollars. Like, it was just stuff like, he wanted us to stay true to a lot of the aspects, um, even if we took creative license with, let's say, some of the FBI guys that were chasing him or his lawyers. In the script, there's one main lawyer that sort of deals, that deals with his case, um, but he's an amalgamation of many lawyers. In real life, there was many lawyers. It wasn't this one guy. So things like that were okay, but he wanted to make sure the smuggling was, was treated accurately. Um, and so, you know, we agreed to the things that he wanted and yeah, he signed off on that life rights uh, option. It really gave us creative control um, of the project and, and the ability to sort of take the, take the story within those bounds, within those parameters where we wanted to. And so just as an option expires, then someone's life rights expire as well and then they're free to use them with another production company? They could. Or? We have it in, so that we have a certain term and then it automatically renews for extended periods unless one of us cancels it. So as long as Miles is happy, I mean, it's going to keep renewing um, unless he gives us written notice within you know 30 days of when the expiration is. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh. And yeah. when does that come out, by the way? Well, we're working, we're, we're working to or trying to get it off the ground for top of 2019 in terms of production. So this is, this is I mentioned earlier, a project we were looking at possibly shooting in Australia. Oh, um, mm -hmm. there's, there's maybe some tax incentives we can take advantage of. Plus, a lot of the picture takes place in Southern California and the Caribbean. And so Australia has locations that can really play for both because the Caribbean really looks very different than Southern California. You know, Caribbean's very flat, white sands, different type of palm trees, different type of water, just a different type of look. The, the people, I mean, it's very different. But yet Australia, I think, has um, options for us that um, can play for both. So that's something we've been looking at. How does a movie producer view a screenplay versus how an actor, filmmaker, or writer views the screenplay, mm. do you think? Well, I mean, since I'm not an, an actor or you know, some of these other uh, people, I can't, I can't necessarily speak to their process, but I mean, I think a producer probably is a lot more comprehensive in terms of, when I look at a script, I'm thinking about a lot of different things. I'm thinking about all those things, um, specifically how, how they relate budget-wise and fiscally, but also, you know, how that, <clears throat> you know, the creative and the fiscal will work together. So, you know, I, when I read the script, I'm thinking about story and I'm thinking about the arc of the characters and I'm thinking about the conflict and I'm thinking about why are we telling this story, but I'm also thinking about, okay, who, who would I get to play these? Who could I get to play these roles on this budget level? Like, what are some decent names? Who am I picturing in this? You know, I'm thinking about 
and if, I mean, I'm presuming in this situation that the movie's real, that it's not just a script. I'm not just reading it for fun, but it's like, okay, we're making this picture. Like this picture's funded, Mark, read the script. So I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, how are we gonna pull off that? We need that this kind of grandiose house or there, there, a good example would be, um, there's a project I'm working on right now called Litu. Um, and um, very hopeful it will shoot this summer. Um, the financing is getting locked down um, as we speak. Um, and a very cool thriller about these sort of two, I don't know, like helicopter parents, these sort of like wealthy parents. They've got these two 10 year old twins. And the twins are, um, they're kind of like, they're, the parents are finding them hard to tutor. Uh, the, boy, the, the, the boy's got like a learning disability and the girl's kind of too smart for her own good, too rebellious. And they're having trouble tutoring these kids and, they, and the kids have their own language that they speak in when they don't want the parents to know what they're saying. So the parents buy this device called a Litu. It's kind of like a, a, an Alexa or a Google Home device, like one of these smart devices. You know, it connects to the house, it can lock the door, it can open the windows, it can do all these kind of, turn the lights down, answer questions, whatever. And it starts, at first the kids don't like it, but then it starts learning their language and it befriends them and then it and then the kids start liking it and it starts you know they, they start it starts tutoring you know the kids better than the parents can and eventually the kids start pushing back on the parents a little bit and it starts overstepping its bounds and the parents are finally like we need to get rid of this thing at first it's good but then it starts to take take it a little bit over the line and by this point the kids like love this thing so much that um they secretly get another one without the parents knowing and it remembers them like its mind is in the cloud like it remembers these two kids and the parents decide we're going to send the kids to two different private schools instead of together and the kids are like freaking out because they don't want to they're twins they don't want to be separated so the litu starts planning with the kids to take out the parents it starts plotting with them to get rid of the parents and it controls the house and it locks the door you can you know so this whole big it builds to this really big climax and it's just a really really well written script so I'm using that as an example because when I'm reading the script and it looks like, you know, this is moving toward production, I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, this house is such a major location. We need to be able to, it's like a character. Um, the Litu, the voice of the Litu, what does it look like? The lights on it, it glows or whatever. Is that going to be a practical effect? Is that going to be a post-visual effect? How are we going to pull that off? Um, the casting, so you've got the two parents, you've also got the kids. When are we gonna shoot this thing? Because with kids, you can only shoot so many hours. Um, so with their age group, maybe you get nine hours a day with them. Um, if it's during a school year, you can only shoot for say six of those hours. And the other three, they're having to be schooled. Yeah, the set teacher has to be schooling them. But if it's in the summer when school's not in, as long as the set teacher's on set, we don't have to burn shooting time with schooling. So okay, you know, summer is probably a better time to shoot. The, so. I'm giving you some examples, but you know, production design in the house, I'm looking at some of these things and I'm saying, you know, okay, we need this and we need, we need to dress the kid's room like this. Okay, who, you know, there's a very specific style. Do I know somebody who might be able to execute that style? It's very postmodern. Um, I've worked with a production designer that did this and wow, sound is such a big deal. You know, so I'm thinking about all, these, all of these things as I'm reading it as opposed to an actor's reading it. Yes, they're considering story. I think everybody with some sort of creative you know, position is thinking about story um, to some degree. But the actor is gonna be much more focused on their role and the arc of their role. And the cinematographer is gonna be much more focused. They're gonna be reading it and seeing something totally different. And they're gonna say, oh wow, okay, so you got a bunch of exterior night out here by the pool. Are we gonna light the pool? How are we gonna light it? Are we gonna light the water? How are we gonna, they're gonna be looking at it that way. Or I see you got this shot that follows them through the house. And so they're gonna to wanna to talk to the director about how that, 
I'm thinking about all that stuff, but I'm thinking about like, okay, do we gonna have the budget for those kind of lights? And creatively, if we can't pull something off, how are we gonna be able to, you know, to make that, we can't pull that off with the budget or, or there's some other logistical circumstance that's gonna make that unreasonable. What are we gonna to have to change in the script to do that? And um, I'm also a line producer in a UPM, so I am, I'm breaking down the script and I am thinking about all of these things. I'm, okay, we need Steadicam to pull that off and we need, to, so I really do get down to that level of detail, but, um, it, 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 to some degree, but um, I, I'm thinking about everything, um, you know, in one form or fashion, as it relates to creative and fiscal and how those two things work together. And I think, I think probably a lot of other, um, I think writers are probably focused more on story and not a lot of them not necessarily on the logistics. So when I talk to them, I'm like, but how are we going to pull this off? You know, like, oh yeah, well, so from a producer, uh, you know, producer's perspective, we're talk, we're thinking more about execution. Uh, well, I think a lot of writers just they just tell the story they want to tell and they don't necessarily think about how it will be done, which is fine. You're the writer, that's your job, just get the story out. But when it starts to become real and then we have to start approaching how we're going to do it, sometimes some things for logistical reasons have to have to shift. Do you think a lot of new writers don't see that just yet? Like that you really have to, once someone's been in the game for a while, they can really scale things back to one room, one town, one location. I, you know what, I, I find the people that, the writers that grasp it the quickest are, are hyphenates who have also produced or who have been involved in something other than, I mean, a lot of times, you know, writers, they like locking themselves in a, away in a room and just working by themselves. They, they haven't necessarily been part of the collaborative creative process, but the ones who have, the ones who have also directed or also produced and understand the exigencies of production, I think those people um, have a better grasp when I say, um, this is gonna be tough to do. Um, here's some ways we might be able to do it. You know, as an example, I just recently budgeted a script called Not Long Together, I think is, is fantastic. And there was a scene in it, you know, one bigger scene where the guy shows up and it's a big, uh, a woman has died and there's ambulances and cop cars and, and there's a helicopter with a spotlight because they're looking in the water and things. And he's like, yeah, we'll probably have to get rid of that. I'm like, well, so there might be a couple ways that we can do this if we have a decent enough. I said, you know, a couple cop cars, I know what they cost to rent. I know what ambulances cost to rent, you know, you know paying like 350 a day for picture vehicles. Um, some caution tape and a few background actors walking through making it look busy. I said, your biggest issue is your helicopter. Um, but we might be able to get like a scissor lift and, you know, 5K or something and do the spotlight and then license a stock footage shot of a 4K stock footage shot of a police helicopter and just cut to, you know, him. And they're like, yeah, we could do that. I'm like, because a stock footage shot, you could license that for 150 bucks. Go on Getty Images. And you know what? We did. And we're like, well, look at all these great 4K helicopter shots. And you cut that in and you can get your helicopter and you can have a few cop cars and a few ambulances and, you know, whatever. And it would probably cost us this, this much. You know, maybe we can do it for, you know, whatever thousand, how many, you know, however many thousand dollars. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. that's actually. So coming up with, say creative solutions, sometimes it's changes to the script or sometimes it's like, it might not be how you're thinking, but here's another way we can do it. And that's an example. And he was like, yeah, oh, this is awesome. Okay, great, done. <laughs> what would you recommend to a screenwriter who doesn't have an agent, manager, or producer to guide them? Um, so yeah, I guess presuming that they're sort of uh, up and coming. Um, I, you know, I think getting an agent or a manager, um, not both when you're starting off is a good um, avenue because you, you, you really need an advocate. I mean, a lot of writers are not uh, necessarily good at pitching themselves. And, and even if you are, there's something that just comes off pretentious and arrogant about talking about how great your own work is. I mean, that's a good, you do the writing, let them do the talking, you know. Um, 
And so I do think a good agent or manager, I, I just don't think your career is big enough. Even big writers don't often need both. But um, just an advocate to go out and push for you is, is I, I think, is, is, is always worthwhile. Um, so assuming you don't know anybody, I, I think a good way to try to get to an agent and manager, there's a few, few good ways. Number one is you know networking, obviously, but not necessarily directly with agents and managers. A lot of times you can, as you get to know more people in this industry, whether it's producers, DPs, actors, whoever, you start meeting other people who are represented. And a good way to get in with agents and managers, even better than just meeting them at the party and, and saying, hey, look, I, I'm, I'm a writer, can, you know, take, can you take a look at my stuff, is knowing someone who already knows them is in, in oftentimes a better way to do it. So instead of going out and trying to meet an agent or a manager, look at your own resource base and other people you know, and it's like, my friend's repped by innovative artists. Maybe, you know, hey, you know, I'll take you out to dinner. If you can just get, can you get me, you know, get my script over there and get somebody to look at it or get me a meeting, I'll take you out for a nice dinner or whatever, but leverage your own contacts because this is a relationship business. So even more than being able to just go up to an agent and say, I know you don't know me, but I'd really like to take a look at my stuff. They usually don't. But if it comes from someone they already know and trust, that's a good way to get. So look at like who you, and that, that's what I've advised. I, I have a friend of mine, um, director, who, who um, he, he's, he's a visual effects guy. His name is Lloyd Barnett. He's an amazing visual effects guy. He was a lead compositor on Avatar. And he directed a movie I produced called Ninja Apocalypse. He also did a lot of visual effects in that movie. Um, and he wants to direct. He wants to do more directing. So I helped him put together a director reel. And he was asking me, God, you know, how, 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 do, how, how should I get to these agents? I'm like, I've been in this business a long time. You have to know people that have agents. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, think about, you know, other, other VFX artists you've worked uh, with. Think about, you know, um, other, you know, below the line that you've worked with. Composers. You have a friend. He does music. He might be rep by this agent. Oh, he's oh yeah, he's rep by Gersh. You know, talk to him. Great, see if he can get you um, get your you know your reel looked at. So that's one way. I think I think another way too is you know talent rises to the top. I do believe that. I do believe that talent will eventually be rewarded. Real talent. Um, unfortunately, I mean I think a lot of people have an over overestimate their own abilities a lot. Um, so you, I, I think you know you being being recognized as, as talented it's got to be someone else other than yourself just saying it. other other people need to recognize the talent um that that that's what sort of <clears throat> i think that's what makes that's what um i would say actually elevates you to the point of when uh, when you have other people in the industry who, who have some mod modicum of success saying i think this guy's talented i think that's that's when it's legitimate um it's great that you believe in yourself having confidence is fantastic I think the whole self-esteem movement has done more to harm young kids than help them. Self-esteem is something where you know you believe that you um, are owed something, that you should feel good just because you're unique and you're this and you're that, as opposed to um, you know having accomplished something. And I, f I feel like, um, as opposed to confidence, is a different thing. Believing you can go out and get it, as opposed to self-esteem, believing that you're great and you're owed something just because you're unique. I don't buy that. But I believe that you should be confident, um, you know, in your in your abilities to, you know, to a degree. Oh, not overconfident, but be confident in yourself that either that you have some modicum modicum of talent or that you can develop the talent you have into a skill. And I so I think that some people that are good to judge, to, to judge that is um, some of the screenplay competitions, some of the better ones, um, like. And I had written a whole article on this at. Um, uh, Fundsforwriters.com. I wrote a whole article on the pros and cons of screenplay competitions. But some of the top ones, like the Sundance Screenwriters Lab, like the Nichols, um, Austin, 
Blue Cat, a Tracking Bee, Final Drafts, Big Break. There's a few that, and I, I think they've elevated themselves because they've been around for a long time and they use a lot of industry, working industry professionals to read the scripts and, and grade them. Um, so you have people that are in the industry that are in the know. They're not just hiring interns or kids like, hey, read this and do coverage on it. But it's, um, they have experienced readers. And when you have enough of those competitions saying, yeah, I think this, this guy has got something or, you know, this script is really is something else. Um, it's a fresh voice, what have you. Uh, you know, I think there, then there's some legitimacy to, okay, this person really does have some talent because you have some experienced third parties who have an eye for talent. This is what we do as producers, as directors, right? We like, we identify talent, you know? Um, and I think if you can excel in some of those competitions, you're gonna get, you know, the opportunities to interface with agents and managers. If you can at least hit in a big competition, competition, the quarterfinal level, um, you can you can get. I think you can get agents and managers to read your script. If you can get to the semifinal, they'll probably be calling you. And if you can get the finals level, you're going to get meetings. You know, if, I mean, if you're a finalist in Nichols, you're going to have you're going to you will be able to get meetings with William Morris and CAA because that's such a limited pool of people compared to the number that apply. I mean, literally thousands and thousands of people apply, and it gets down to. A, literally a small handful of people. So um, I think that's another way to get to, um, you know, uh, to get to agents and managers. So play out your, your own resource base and see who you know that's, that's already repped and see if you can get in that way. And also competitions. I think that's two ways to get, to, to get access to agents and managers. I understand you mentor people, up-and-coming producers, young people in the film industry. Mm-hmm. What do you see some of them struggling with and then some of them dealing with that they that you see as maybe a hindrance, but they don't realize it? Well, so let me, let me just start with this. I, I, you know, I didn't have great mentor experiences being a mentee. Uh, when I was at UCLA, I had a mentor who was, I mean, I had picked, he ran a studio, I thought he'd be a great mentor. I was supposed to get three meetings with the guy um, for an hour. The first meeting, I sat around in his waiting room for half an hour before he even was like, oh, okay, yeah, come in. And then I may have gotten a half hour FaceTime with him. He told me how great, oh yeah, you're doing everything right. The second meeting, he pawned me off to his creative exec. I never even got to meet with him again. And then then the third meeting never even happened. And I was just really disappointed in the experience. And I said, you know, God, you know, I would love to, if I have a chance to impart any kind of knowledge, if I ever can accrue just some piece of, you know, uh, knowledge that I, I feel, I feel at the po- this point I can impart on, on someone else, on, on a younger person or somebody who's up and coming and help benefit them. I really want to make sure that I, that I do it right, that I put in the time um, and, you know, really listen and do everything that I, that I promised I was going to do. If I said I'm going to give them three meetings, I'll, you know, I'll give them five. Um, and really take, I really wanted to make sure that if I mentored someone that they felt like they got the value out of it and didn't have the same sort of letdown of an experience um, that I had. And I had a couple experiences like that. The UCLA one was one. I had, a, I had another one as well um, through, the, through the producer's guild where I decided to just be a mentee and um, you know, be mentored by a bigger studio producer that had been doing it, you know, much bigger pictures than I had been doing. Because um, you always, look, I mean, you're always learning. And the day you stop learning, go home, do something else. Why are you doing this? If, you know, um, So I'm always learning. I'll be learning till the day I die. And that's one of the things I love about this. But I wanted to make sure that the mentors, the, men, the mentees that I was mentoring were not having that sort of negative experience and that they were really getting something out of it. 
And so, um, so I've, I've mentored a few people through the Producers Guild um, mentorship program. I really do like it. I think it's a great program. So, like, um, let's say you know some twenty-something cat who's been doing reality TV. He's been a segment producer. He's been a field producer, but he wants to do movies. You know, I want to be an indie producer, and that's where so many of them want to go. Even with the whole new media thing, traditional feature films. A lot of younger producers still want to do feature films. Um, so they might be experienced producers in their own right, but in a whole different video games or news or reality TV or something they want to do features. Um, and I'll walk them, you know, through the problem, meet with them. I might let them shadow me. One of them, I let him come to a sound mix. Excuse me. And it was, it was funny because reality TV is totally different. So we're sitting in the sound mix and I said to him, you know, come stay as long as you want. And if you want to chime in with an idea, please go ahead. Tell us. And um, we're sitting there, we're doing a scene, and he, he kind of chimes in and goes, hey, here's an idea. What do, you, what do you guys think if you just like got rid of that whole part of the end of the scene, just ended it right there? And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, so if, see where this, okay, right here where the scene ends, just like cut out that whole part and just cut right to the scene. I go, you're talking about editing? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh. I said, where's the sound mix? The picture's been locked for months. <laughs> I said, oh, he's like, oh. I'm like, once you're in audio on a feature film, and you're, especially the sound mix, this picture's been live. Not one frame of the picture is changing at this point. And he's like, oh, in reality, it's totally different. I didn't know that. In reality, while they're doing sound, they're also cutting. Let's just lose that. Okay, bump that sound up. It's a whole different workflow. It's a different post workflow. It's much, you know, kind of more nimble. And while features, like you lock picture, and now you're starting on sound and visual effects and music, but you got to lock the picture first. And not one frame of that picture is changing. Um, and he didn't realize that. So he learned. He's like, oh, okay. And um, I feel like, you know, just seeing, I don't even know if I'm answering your question yet, but um, seeing that these, I, don't know, I call them kids because they're younger than me, but um, these, these, these people, these younger producers are um, really getting something out of the process and learning something that they, taking art skills they already have and expanding them. Like they already have some understanding about post workflow as an example but they don't know how it translates into other areas of entertainment or other media. And, or some of the things we've talked about on script development, you know, like, okay, they have some understanding of story. So I, you know, some of these people that already have an interest and some experience, but I can take it to maybe a different level or in, in, in an area where I have more experience than them. Um, I really enjoy that and I feel like um, I get something back as well because I often learn from them because they bring some sort of knowledge that I didn't know about from their areas. Um, and a lot of times it, it can translate into like sort of mutually beneficial working relationships in the future. And I even try to do a mentor, even if it's not a formal mentor program. Sometimes um, I've done interviews with these younger cats that got podcasts and what have you. And they, God, yeah, it was great talking to you. If, if I ever have questions about if I'm working on a script, could I call you or email you? I'm like, yeah, sure, please. I'm very open and very willing to, uh, to do that. I don't think, I think people that try to you know, like hold on to knowledge and, 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 and uh, you know, keep it, keep it for themselves, I think wind up doing themselves a disservice because I think sharing knowledge um, and having dialogue with, with other people, with people that have different views and different ideas and different knowledge about different areas, I think that helps you grow as a producer as well, that dialogue and the information, you know, that you get. And also it helps you, I think a lot of times, formulate your own thoughts and your own ideas when you're faced with now having to tutor somebody, now you really have to like 
you think about what you're gonna what you're gonna say and what you're gonna impart and how that functions in the real world. It's not just philosophy. It's it's got to be put to some sort of practical application, you know. And I think that's um, that's one of the things I enjoy. I enjoy that dialogue. Well, you know, you always hear that. Well, back in my day, we had it so much harder. And I try to think about if I were a millennial today, it'd actually be probably more difficult than when I was looking for a job when I was younger in right. the '90s, when you know, Amazon was coming up and what is this, you know, the yeah. tech bubble and all that. But yeah, there's social media, which is great. But then there's also the dark side, which is everyone's comparing their life online. So there's this yep. inherent like inferiority that everyone thinks everybody else is doing better than they are. Right. And then there's also whether they were affected by the recession, their parents probably were. So I started to think, you know what, actually millennials may have it tougher. I know right now there's this huge debate about, oh, millennials and this and that. And some of the stereotypes may be right. true. I, I, I won't, you know, say that that's not true, but I, I think that it would be in some sense more difficult today, but maybe I'm wrong. Do you think that they have it tougher or, or it's just a different set of challenges? I, I, you know, my whole view on life is trade-offs, 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 trade-offs. That's what life is all about. There's, and with, with millennials and the newer generation, it's the same. There's always pros and cons. Um, so like, for example, what you were talking about, I think, um, like new, the new media in terms of technology, in terms of access to being able to create entertainment oh yeah i mean clearly millennials have it better in terms of access to prosumer technology i mean they can get their hands on red cameras and area lexus and the same stuff big tv shoot on and they can cut on final cut and you know adobe uh premiere same stuff that bigger shows cut on. they have access to things while 30 years ago i mean you're not going to get a, a quarter million dollar panavision camera and you're not going to be able to edit that you when i was a kid we were editing our little videos with two vcrs play record and pause you know and i mean it was that's how you were having to cut your videos these you know the younger generation has access and also access to new distribution platforms ways to get their stuff seen that 30 years ago was unheard of like t television and movie theaters you know and t you know to some degree home video um, but it was you know, it was a, it was different. Now they have through through streaming and and uh, you know online. They have so many other ways to get their content seen. But then with that comes negatives. I mean, so there's a lot because new more access means more competition. And there's you know so the content media space is so fractured, and there's so many different things competing for eyeballs, and so many people now creating YouTube videos and creating content and what have you that that space is becoming really crowded, as opposed to like we were talking about earlier with Blood Simple or Sex, Lies and Videotape. There wasn't really indie filmmakers out there doing so. It's like, wow, this is, you know, they were, but it was much harder for them to get access. I mean, you know, buying film and that kind of equipment and, you know, it was much more expensive. And so again, there's trade-offs, there's pros and cons to everything. I think so, in some ways they have it better and in some ways I think they have it, they have it tougher. Red flags of a distribution deal. Red flags of a distribution deal. Save one of the toughest for last. Um, Sorry. Actually, you know, actually maybe not. Because when I'm, so a lot of the pictures I do are home entertainment titles, not necessarily pictures that'll go to um, theatrical. If they do, they'll go limited theatrical. Um, and I think a lot of times when I look at a contract, yeah, I'm looking at the marketing and how much they're saying the marketing is gonna cost. Um, a, a lot of the distributors that I try to avoid are these are these guys that put in their contracts that well they're going to spend fifty or seventy five thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars on P and A and marketing and I'm like well what exactly are you going to spend that money on 
because to get the guy, the average guy just walking down the street to see your movie, like you need $5 million minimum. I mean, you need huge amounts of P&A just to get that random guy walking down the street to even know what your movie is. I mean, the, the amount of money it takes to market um, billboards and bus shelters and bus sides and TV spots and online and getting that banner on IMDb on the front page. It costs millions and millions of dollars to do a campaign wide enough to really draw those kind of eyeballs. Home entertainment is such a different beast it's a lot of it's done through now social media, through free publicity, getting interviews and junkets with your actors or getting reviews written up and that sort of thing. Um, or, you know, through other creative, non-expensive forms of marketing, like, for example, you know, when you go into Xbox or Netflix and it says, you might also like and list, getting high up on that algorithm where your film is listed with some big film, you might also like this little film. That means so much more to a smaller, um, to a smaller film or just getting, you know, um, an end cap in Walmart is a huge, it may not cost you a lot to do that, but if you have a distributor that has a relationship that can do that, that's what happened with Ninja Apocalypse. We got an end cap in Walmart and in Best Buy and that didn't cost anything extra, That was, but that was sort of smart, you know, a distributor using relationships and things. That's how you have to get your film known, premiering at a really, a festival that's got, you know, really good um, promotional, um, sponsorship and, and press behind it. Um, we premiered Ninja Apocalypse at Comic-Con in San Diego. Perfect. Right, and so instead of spending millions and millions of dollars, you have, it's more things like that that I look for. So when I see a distribution contract that says, oh, we're gonna spend $75,000 in marketing, I'm like, on what? What are you spending that on? Well, we gotta cut trailers, like I can cut a trailer, I can get a cut trailer cut for a grand. What else? Uh, well, you know, we gotta do posters, I'm like, same thing. I mean, I have designers that can do posters. I would rather do those things and instead of having the distributor bill some enormous markup. Um, and a lot of times, if they have that $75,000 marketing expense built in, you're not gonna see any money until that 75,000 is recouped. It's not like they're gonna say, well, we've only spent 10 of it, so okay, we'll start cutting you checks now. No, they're gonna keep saying, oh, well, you know, we haven't hit that $75,000 marketing cap. So I really look at you know, that number how much they're spending, um, and it should be a smaller number, and I wanna know honestly what it is. I want it to be something where we actually have a chance at making some, getting a recruitment here and not, you have to, you know, you have to make 75 or 100 grand before we even see the first dollar, because on a million dollar picture, I mean, it's not, you're not gonna be out there in theaters, you know, making $30 million. So um, the economics are different, and um, how that money is spent is different. So things like um, going to film markets, that's a reasonable, justifiable distribution expense. Um, and then marketing expenses, you know, you know there's, there's certain, um, you know, cut, cutting trailers can be reasonable as long as I know, you know, okay, what they're spending. I like to usually have um, the ability to approve any expense over a certain amount so I know that they're not being unreasonable. Um, you know, and then there could be, you know, working meals, lunches with buyers, things like that are reasonable but up to a certain amount. So, so I'm usually looking for that number to be um, you know, cur curtailed somewhat. And then in terms of the term of the, the distribution contract, a lot of times, you know, seven years is, is pretty standard, um, but there, you know, very, you know, I would almost never do anything in perpetuity. You know, and then sometimes you see contracts that are 10 years or 12 years that might be, that seemed a little excessive. In terms of fees, um, you know, like for me, I'm kind of looking around the 20% range in terms of what I'm willing to pay a distributor. Um, some charge as much as 30% or more. So, you know, um, you know, red flags to me are typically, you know, term fees, 
marketing expenses are, are the first. And then, you know, other than that, you're just looking at you know, sort of any onerous language that ties you to something you don't want to be tied to. Like, oh, we want rights to all the future sequels or something. And, you know, like unless you're willing to invest money in those future sequels, I mean, we're only talking about this picture, you know, right here. So, um, so yeah. And, and then, you know, I think you can tell reputable distributors too just by the language of their contracts. Um, a lot of times... Too, if you little things like if you start to see a lot of like typos and spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes, and this is a distributor you're not familiar with, to me that's a red flag because any legi legitimate distributor is going to have a legitimate attorney drafting those contracts, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to see them riddled with mistakes. I typically don't deal with distributors that I've never heard of. Um, usually, they come to me by way of someone who I know who's worked with them, or I, you know, they've been around for a while. Um, I know their work, and, and I try so I try to stick with with distributors that. I already know have a good reputation. I already know people have worked with them. I've said good things about them, so I don't have to worry about a lot of those, um, uh, a lot of those issues.